Amen. Good to see you guys today. You know, we just a few weeks ago finished our study through 2 Samuel. And so today I'm starting a new like mini series. We're going to go through the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These are the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches of Asia at that time. The book of Revelation starts with chapter 1 as a picture of Jesus in all of his glory. Chapters 2 and 3 are these letters to seven local churches. And they're in order of the circuit that they would go on where those churches are, which is in present-day Turkey. So it starts with Ephesus, and then it moves consecutively throughout that area of the country. So the reason, and then the rest of it is all about here's what's going to happen down the road as it describes the events of the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom and, and ultimately the eternal state. What makes these letters so interesting to me, and they're some of the most important scriptures for us to study today, because think about it, Jesus, we read the Gospels where Jesus taught for three years about everything that people really needed to understand. And part of that, notably the last couple weeks of his life, he was preparing the disciples for the fact that he was going to die and that they would have to do life without him. Then he rose from the dead. He taught them a few other things. His last word to his followers was, you need to take this message and communicate it to the world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You need to, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So that's kind of it. That takes us to 33 AD. Now, a lot happened after that. Like Jesus, when he was speaking prophetically about the future, he, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and Luke also, he talked about the time when Jerusalem would be overrun by the Romans. Well, that happened in 70 AD. So Jesus gave us, took us to that point, but man, a lot's happened. Now by the time the book of Revelation is written, it's in at least the 90s AD. So we're talking about 60 years or so after Jesus gave his last teachings. So the church had this commission, and now, boy, a lot happened in the world. And the reason to me these letters to the seven churches are so important is it's really the last thing that Jesus had to say to his followers, to the church. And it's kind of a report card as to how they were doing up until that point. So for me, these letters are incredibly important to us because it really is Jesus' last word before in the end when he wraps it all up together. And so there's a lot that we can learn as the church, you know, changed and developed and grew. Remember, there, he talked about, you know, upon this rock, I'll build my church. There was no church. There was no church until the, the disciples took the message of the gospel and spread it to other places. But also at the time when Jesus died, the main church was in Jerusalem, but eventually Jerusalem would be overrun. Now the main church, there were churches scattered 
throughout Asia and Europe, and, so, and some in Syria and other places as well. So it's like this is an update. And so for me, I look at this and I'm like, this is interesting because Jesus, after you know, 60 years, having been on the earth for three years, now he says, oh, by the way, here's what the church needs to understand. Here's what you need to know. Here are the things that are most important. So to me, it's exciting. And we'll see each of these churches as a little different emphasis because they were all individually different kinds of churches. But in the end, they all apply to us. Now, there are people who, who think that each of these churches represents an era of history, that the church in Ephesus represented the first century church. And by the time you get to Laodicea, it's the last day's church. But really, that's, it's a cute idea, but there's no way. It doesn't measure up historically, biblically, through church history or anything else. It was just so, but if you want to believe that, that's fine. I don't, I don't mind you believing it. I, I love it when people are wrong because it makes me smarter. But, but here today, we will look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. And then each week, we will take another of these letters. It's interesting that Ephesus is listed first. Part of that is very simple that mechanically, when John gave this letter to be passed out to the churches, the church in Ephesus was the one that was closest to where John was when he was on the Isle of Patmos uh, where he had been banished. And so it was, mechanically, it was the logical church to start with. But also, the church in Ephesus is by far the most amazing church in the early church for a whole lot of reasons. For one thing, the city of Ephesus was iconic. It was the greatest city. It had been rebuilt by Alexander the Great during the Grecian Empire. And by this time in the first century, it was just this huge city, culturally, religiously, in so many ways. It was the place. They had a, and we, uh, next year, Lord willing, when we go to um, our Israel trip, and then we're going to go on a, on a tour hitting some of the places in uh, Europe on a cruise. We're definitely going to go to, to Ephesus. And, and we'll also go to Patmos where, where John was, was uh, sent and where he will go to the cave where he most likely wrote the book of Revelation and maybe 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. But the reason it's important, you know, well... First of all, it was the most pagan city of its day. It's always interesting how God works most in places that are most pagan because there's such a contrast. It's like, well, it's not like, wow, these people are really moral, but they don't have the gospel. No, they're, the people in Ephesus, well, they, they worship the goddess Diana, who was a, you know, a grotesque figure that represented everything sleazy and immoral that there ever was. And that was what they were known for. The temple to Diana was, was um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there are still remains there of it. And I mean, they had 67, 68 foot pillars on this thing. It was so prominent that it was also the, the world bank of the empire at the time was that temple. 
But they had a theater that seated 20,000 people. They had an amphitheater where for competitions, it seated 100,000 people. This was the place in the ancient world. It really was. Now, I mean, it was like, if you went to Ephesus, you would go, this place gives me the creeps. It's kind of like it's Pride Month every month there, you know? And, but it was gross. So, but that made it a really important city. But the church in Ephesus was amazing as well. Think about this. Paul went, and Paul just loved going to places where the need was the greatest. So on his third missionary journey, (coughs) he went to Ephesus. And instead of just stopping in, preaching, and leaving, doing a crusade, Paul stayed there for three years. He started this church, and he pastored them for three years so that after it was all said and done, he said, Man, I taught you the whole counsel of God. Everything I could think of to teach you, I gave it to you. So the church got off to a great start with Paul as its pastor. (coughs) Then, later, Apollos, the greatest orator of the early church, pastored the church in Ephesus, and he had Priscilla and Aquila helping him out there. They were like his assistants. Then later, Timothy, who was like a son to Paul, Timothy became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And then finally, the apostle John, the disciple who Jesus loved, became the pastor there at the Ephesus church for many years until when he was close to 90, he got exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But after he got out of exile, he went back to Ephesus and was still He pastored the church for a while, but then even when he was getting too old to actually pastor, church traditions tell us that every week they would bring bring John up to the front of the church. Now remember, this is like 30 years after Paul's dead. Most of the New Testament, all of it's been written pretty much, except for the books that John wrote. They would set him up in front of the church, and everyone would be quiet, and John would say, Beloved, let us love one another then they would wheel them off. So this church was amazing. You know, everybody who was anybody had been involved in this ministry. So when we see Jesus addressing this church personally, it's something that we should give it particular attention. And it's why it kind of starts there, because this is the church of the ancient world for sure. And, and ultimately, he has a lot of good to say about them, but let's dive into this. It's just going to be the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now, that word angel is just a word that means somebody that brings a message. So it probably wasn't a, an angel, an angelic being, as we think of angels. It was just someone who carried the message It could have been a messenger. It could have been the pastor of the church at the time. We don't know, but each of these churches has a messenger, and and that's who Jesus is addressing. In those days, a lot of people couldn't read, so somebody would have to read it to the people. So he says, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. If you go back and read Revelation chapter 1, it's primarily a revelation of Jesus in all of his glory. 
like shining and, and you know, they do, John does the best he can to describe it, but he can't even describe it. And so as these letters are introduced, he'll pull one of the ideas from chapter one and identify himself that way. So it's Jesus going, I'm the one. I am the one that we're talking about this glory. That's where I am. And I have a message for you. And he starts out in verse two. By the way, he, it, with, in most of these, he has good things to say about them and bad things to say about them. Now, there's a way that people in communication say, if you want to say something bad to someone, it's best to sandwich it by saying something good, then say something bad, then say something good again. Because they're more, they know really the bad thing is why you're talking to them. But it's kind of like if somebody works for you and you call them in and you say, you know, I just want to tell you how, how much I've loved having you work here. But, you know, you're really kind of worthless. <laughs> but we'll always remember you. <laughs> That's the sandwiching. So he kind of does that with this church in Ephesus. Like says some good things that are sincere. Then he says the bad thing, which is really what he wants to address. And then he throws out one other good thing at the end. So, I know your works. The word there for works, it's not talking about doing good things or bad things. The word ergon, it's a word that we, well, we use, for instance, a, a desk or a chair in an office. We say that it's ergonomic, the laws of work. In other words, it works efficiently. So ergon in work in this respect is here's basically what you do. Here's who you are. Here is what your basic identity of how you do life every day is. So he's saying, I know that, but I also know your labor. The word there is a word that means laboring to the point of, you know, just it hurting, like painful labor. It's, in Greek, it's the word kapos, which is at its root means to cut. So it's like, I know the way you do business, and I know that sometimes you do it so much that it hurts. I know your patience. I know that you can't bear those who are evil. You know, you have a healthy evaluation and analysis of people who are doing things wrong. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You guys are really good at finding fake apostles, fake Christian teachers, and identifying them for what they are. Now, back in Acts 20, when Paul had addressed the Ephesian elders, this was one of his major warnings that he gave them. He said, there are going to rise up leaders among you who are going to corrupt the truth and integrity of what my heart really says and what really matters. You better protect yourself from those people. Now, he didn't tell them, you live in a really sleazy country, and so you better watch out for all those sinners out there. No, he's going, your real threat comes from within. And so here, Jesus says, you guys are doing good with that. You're being discerning. You're being discriminating. You are addressing the phonies among you. And so I give you credit for that. You don't, you, know, you don't put up with that. And you have persevered. 
You hang in there when it hurts. You have patience. You have labored for my name's sake. And that's like I've, you work to the point of exhaustion for me. And you have not become weary. You're exhausted, but not so much that you quit. So basically, this is pretty good. As a church, you're sticking up for the truth. You're looking for people among you that are getting it wrong. You are working so hard and so faithfully, and you're doing so much good, and I applaud you for that. But he says, nevertheless, in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Sounds like a pretty minor thing. Like you're doing everything the church is supposed to do. You're being good. You're confronting evil. I just have this one little tiny detail. You have left your first love. Now, don't think of first in terms of like this is the love that you had right at first. That's the, the, the Greek word here. The Greeks were, were almost never focused on, you know, uh, when something happened. They, they're all about what's important. And the word here, protos, refers to the most important love. You have fallen away from the things that you should be caring about the most. You've left your first, your most important love. So, he says... There's some things you need to do. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. That word metanoia means start to think differently. And do the first, again, protos, the most important stuff, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you can learn to think differently, unless you can learn to repent. So he goes, love is missing in your lives. Orthodoxy, it's great. It's interesting how often getting your, your orthodoxy right, your belief system right, sometimes seems to almost lead to a lack of love. The Pharisees understood this. <coughs> Jesus criticized them for this all the time. Yeah, you have your theology down, but you don't care. But remember, Jesus, in talking about the law, when the Pharisees were trying to trick him by, like, so all these laws, 600 some laws, which one's the most important? And Jesus said, you know what? Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. What's important is all of the law is summarized in this. Love God and love people. That's it? Yes. It comes down to love. That's what God has been trying to say. And so they well knew this truth because Jesus talked about it a lot. Um, The Apostle Paul, who had been their first pastor, had talked about it as he wrote to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was an interesting church, and we'll visit that too. But as he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 13, after he's saying, man, you guys are so gifted. But he goes, I want you to understand this. You can have every gift that there is and you can be somebody who is willing to sacrifice your own body and you can give everything to the poor. You can be so good, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean squat. It's a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. This is the central 
core of what it means to follow Jesus, is to be loving. So Jesus isn't saying, you know, you guys probably work on the love thing, but boy, I'm really... No, he's saying, you're doing so much good, and it's being wasted. And he says, ultimately, if this doesn't change, I'm taking you out. You won't be there anymore. You won't be able to be doing all your good works. You won't be able to be doing, oh, your theology is so good. Oh, you're doing all your apologetics and you're shouting down the road. He goes, no, without love, nothing will happen. And see, when orthodoxy is good, you know, in theology, they talk about orthodoxy as basically believing the right things. And then they talk about orthopraxy, which means doing the right things. But orthodoxy and orthopraxy can be as great as it can be. Without love, it doesn't mean anything. So he says, this is something you better get a handle on. And I believe that this is something that to this day is still a primary concern of Jesus. It's why he didn't just send it in a note to Ephesus, but he had it put into the last book in the Bible so that everyone who before you're like, oh, I want to read about the Antichrist. I want to, he goes, remember this. Without love, none of it matters and you'll be taken out. So what do you do when you realize, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not as loving as I'm supposed to be. The love, of course, is what gives our message power. No one ever listens to your arguments and says, I can tell you hate me, but you have a good point. (laughs) People are interested in people who they know really care about them legitimately. So for each one of us, we have to ask ourselves, is that coming through? Is that coming across? If it isn't, as is often a battle that many of us face, certainly we're no different. I mean, these Ephesians, they were good people, but they had this problem. So what do you do? He says, first of all, it starts with remembering. Remember from where you came. Now, he isn't just saying what you need to do is go back and be the way you were before. When he says do the first works, he is saying do the most important stuff. But to remember is where it all starts. When we keep moving, and a lot of times when we're busy in life, and our culture knows what it's like to be busy, it's easy for us to lose perspective on the past. And partly, we don't even want to think about the past because it brings back sad memories. It brings back things we went through. brings back things that we were never able to forgive. I know many of you know that last Sunday on Father's Day, my little brother took his own life. And he did, I, I heard about it. The coroner called me in the middle of first service. So I thought, I, I can't, I'm not going to tell anybody about it second and third service because like then nobody's going to be in the mood for hot dogs and stuff but it was like so you suck it up but in the last week thinking about him memories oh my gosh just and it's not some of it's painful but a lot of it's so important to get a perspective when we shut ourselves off to memories we shut ourselves off to life and to caring and to healing. Because the truth is, you go back in your memories, there are some people who did some really jerky stuff to you. But there are also people who were really good, who really cared about you. And one of those completely overcomes 
a bunch of other bad things, most people who have come into our lives, if we could only remember, the way we deal with pain is we block out memories. So Jesus is saying, don't cut yourself off from your past. Have your memories. Think about it, live it, endure it, go through it. That process is so important because you can never be loving if you're at the same time avoiding the past, avoiding whatever has been here before. And so he says to remember, repent, metanoia. Again, that's the word metanoia means uh, repent. Doesn't mean say you're sorry and don't do it again. It means think differently. Find a fresh perspective. I think we have a tendency to get locked into patterns where we're comfortable. And if you really want to be comfortable, forget everything that ever happened before. And at the same time, don't change. If, like in the last five years, if your mind hasn't been changed about some significant things, you just wasted five years of your life. Because growth happens when we change. When we, and again, it's a different mind. It's a new idea. It's looking at things differently. It's an essential part of love as well because I can love people a lot more when I can put myself into their place and understand why they think what they think, why they do what they do. It's painful, but that's what helps us to grow. And so often, people who get so locked in on truth they, they mean the truth that they have always had and they're going to continue to have it. Man, the truth is, life is complicated. And God's ways are as high above ours as the heavens are higher than the earth. If you sit and think that, well, I pretty much know God's truth and I stand on his truth, repent. Take another approach. Listen to people who disagree with you and understand why they do. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid that, oh, no, somebody's going to convince me of something wrong. Repentance is to be a way of life for us because it's only in repentance that we can continue to love the people who need what we have to offer the most. The more you get set in your ways, the more you will find that you lose the ability to build bridges to other people because you've never even metanoid enough to put yourself in their place and understand why they think what they think. So he's saying, I left you here so that you could learn a new perspective. And he's not saying, go back to what you used to think. He's saying, no, you continue this process of repentance. And then finally, do the first works. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean do the kind of stuff you did back in the day. And you hear people say that, you know, man, when you were a new Christian, you prayed, you were in fellowship, you were worshiping God, you were reading his word. All of those things are really good and they're really important. But that's not what he's talking about. They obviously, they were still doing all of that. They had great teaching. They knew the stuff. But what he's saying is, again, it's the same word, protos, Start doing the most important things. Life is short, you guys. 
And if we waste our time on things that don't matter, then we miss the opportunity to be able to represent to people who don't know Jesus what the truth is. Now, it's not like you're a slave to it all the time, but at the same time, we need to be reminding ourselves that at least there is something in my life that, you know, is stretching me and that's allowing me to build bridges and connect with other people. Do what's most important. What is that for you? I don't know. I'm, last night, Ann and I were, well, she got over it after a while, but I'm watching the College World Series. I'm switching over to the Dodger game. I'm switching over to the Angel game. At the end of the night, LSU won in extra innings. Yay. Um, I was cheering for them because they were the underdogs. The Angels won 25 to 1. Yay. (laughs) The Dodgers won on what was arguably a bad call, a bad ball call, but they won 8-7. Yay. And then I go, well, that was a nice evening. But sometimes you just need a veg evening just just because that's what's important for you at that point. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But am I ever even asking myself, am I doing what matters most? Am I making sure and making room for the most important things? The only way you can do that is by serious reflection, is by really asking yourself, is by remembering in the past, what did I do in the past that to this day I still feel like, wow, that was worthwhile? You know, the night before we were over at my son and daughter-in-law's house and, and kind of celebrating Father's Day because they had been out of town and I didn't feel like celebrating Father's Day. But, you know, we got together and we're watching a game and my son cooked these amazing steaks and it was just, it was a perfect night. And I go, that was a really good night. That night was way better than last night. But at the same time, who knows? Maybe what I need is last night to get me psyched about coming to church and opening the word of God, I don't know. But the question is, am I living on autopilot or do I remember? Do I allow myself to go back into the past and unravel some of these processes and some of these difficulties? Am I thinking in a fresh and a new way? And can I look at what I'm doing and say, that stuff's important? Well, that's what Jesus says to the Ephesians Those are the kinds of things that you need to do in order to make you understand that love is what matters most. When you don't do that, then love just, you don't have room for it. I know people who say that they love the world, but they don't even have any friends. They don't even contact people. They stay away from others. They only hang around people who believe the same things that they believe. Jesus would look at that and go, Uh, your love is really lacking. You're not really learning love until you're interacting with someone with whom you disagree. This remembering is something that, for those of you who have been married for a long time, I mean, the first six or seven years of marriage is usually, it's not that bad. You know, you start start hating each other, but then you have kids, and so there's just no time for it anymore. But if you hang in there, Marriage, I'm convinced, continues to get better because you share a common set of memories. You share a common past. 
So many of the things that you used to think that you know, mattered don't. So many of the things that you took for granted, now they really matter. That's the way life is. That's the same thing with the best friendships that you have. You're friends with people with whom you have a common history. Well, what Jesus is saying to the Ephesian Christians is, you need to live that way. Because, and it, would, it should freak you out. He's saying this to this amazing church that, he, that, that John loves and knows, and Jesus is telling John this to write it down. And it's like, you know what? You may not exist anymore if you don't figure this out. Then the other piece of bread on the sandwich was, by the way, you do hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and I hate them too. So good for you. The Nicolaitans, it's not always clear. They're mentioned one other time in this chapter um, with the church of Pergamos. But um, the Nicolaitans, there were there are people who, a lot of theologians broke the word down. Nike means to win. It's why Nike is called Nike. And laity is from laos, people. And it's like, oh, you get power over people. And so they identify this as the Catholic church. Almost certainly wasn't what he had in mind. Um, early church fathers um, mentioned that, that what, what this is talking about, the Nicolaitans, were people who followed after Nicholas of Antioch. Nicholas is a fascinating character. He was one of the original seven deacons. Remember when they picked seven guys who were so full of the Holy Spirit and such servants and great guys and everybody loved them. They had seven deacons. Well, one of them was Stephen, who then got immediately stoned for his trouble. But Nicholas of Antioch was another one. And church history tells us that he ended up kind of getting off track and he was just going light on morals. He's like, you can cheat, you know, you can commit adultery, not that big of a deal. So naturally, people were like, oh, cool, that's great. Um, you know, so he, you know, I don't know what his church was like, but he probably had a great worship band, you know, but uh, <laughs> just kidding. But he, he ended up being uh, pre-Gnostic, where it's like, you know what, what's physical doesn't really matter. You need this new age, eerie kind of sense, and that's all it is. And so he was leading people astray in the first century church. And again, this is like Nicholas may have been dead by this time because he was made a deacon back in the 30s, and now it's in the 90s. So, But his followers went this route. And he goes, you ought to hate their deeds. But notice he doesn't say... I'm glad you hate those Nicolaitans. I hate them too. Because remember, the message is, it's love. That's the most important thing. You can hate what somebody does. Why do you hate what somebody does? The reason we should hate what people do that's wrong is because we love them and we understand what they're doing to themselves. And so he goes, hate what they do. That's good. So here's this. And then... Jesus goes on and says, if you have an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit's saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he's like, someday in heaven, you're going to be really glad you got this. And there are going to be other people who are there 
because you got this message. The church of Ephesus continued to repent because we have you know, recognition even like in the second century of what a loving church they were and they were orthodox, but they were also loving. And so um, I think they got the message. The question is, do we? Do we, first of all, are we looking at the world out there and preaching against the world out there? Imagine if you're in Ephesus, you would expect that they would for sure go after the temple of Diana. You would think they would for sure go toward these, you know, those, these immoral activities that happened in their theater. You, but you know what? Not a word about that. And when Paul lived there for three years, he was, he was talking to believers about how to be believers. And for him, it was about how to love the people around you. It's not easy to love people who are messed up. But that's our job. That's how the church spreads. As soon as the church starts thinking that they're good because they're, you know, blasting the world out there, they miss their whole reason to exist. At the same time, it's interesting that as soon as a church starts focusing on what's wrong out there, when they're harping against government and they're harping against everything else that's going on out in the world, we lose our capacity to be honest about the church. We look at people who are, well, they have the right beliefs. And so we look the other way when they're con men, when, when they are people who are taking advantage of people and using them and hurting them, but uh, hey, at least they believe the stuff we believe. That's so backwards. We need to make sure that we will speak out against what's wrong among God's people. And it's not our job to go and speak out about what's wrong out in the world. If we do that, we destroy it. It's why Jesus never did that either, why Paul never did that. It's like, no, you know what? We need to win them to understand that God loves them. The other stuff's just details. And so this message of your church is in danger of being eliminated because somehow you're losing your capacity to love the people to whom you're called to love. Oh, you're good about the doctrine. I'm not... Doctrine's not bad. I love theology. But theology without love, which is, by the way, most theology ends up deteriorating into a total lack of love. Theologians aren't known for their love for others. They may even say they love people, but actually they're disgusted by people who don't believe what they believe. That's not the church as Jesus laid it out. And he can't, you know... It's like Jesus hasn't said anything to the church in 50, 60 years. And his first thing he tells them is this. What does that tell us about him and how he sees us? Are we to be that loving? Is our future survival as church in danger if we don't get this figured out? I mean, I've honestly, I've dealt with plenty of really mean, cruel people most of them weren't non-Christians. Most of them were Christians. It's like we, we implode if we allow that to be the case. 
And so that's his message to these people. And because he put it in the scriptures, that's his message to us. Get what's right first. Do we really love everyone that we see? Are we trying to be known as loving people? And quit being the critics of a world that, of course, is doing what the world does. You don't get shocked that people go to the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and they were doing gross stuff. It's kind of all they have. But what we do is, can we love those people? That's our task. And it's a tough one. It's hard to love people who aren't that lovely. But people who aren't that lovely need love even more. And that's our commission as a people. And this is a lesson that we certainly could work on and that we need to learn much more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for taking the time after 60 years or so after your resurrection that you came back to your church for a checkup. And you told us what you still tell us. That it's good to believe the right things. It's good to keep the house pure. But that if we lose love, we lose it all. You will take it away. So Lord, teach us this personally. And I pray that for each of us, we would take the risk of remembering, of reflecting on our lives, of looking back, of seeing what we can learn, of trying to have a different perspective mentally on what we've experienced and what we know, and making sure that when our days, as they roll along, that we are giving some attention to the things that matter most. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.